0: Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Lamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. This morning, given where we're going to be going here and where we have been, uh, and with the variety of things that have already transpired here even this morning, I, I feel a stronger need than usual even for prayer. And so I'm going to ask you if you would join me, please, at this time. Father, we come before you, and, and Lord, we know that uh, there's tithes and offerings that are being released, and I do ask you we would bless those who would choose this time, whether it's online or in the boxes in the back, to... Recognize your sovereignty and rulership in their lives to partner uh, with you. And I pray, Lord, that these funds would be released for your purposes. Lord, we pray for our nation today and uh, pray that your spirit would hover and inject himself into circumstances that surround us now. But particularly, Lord, this morning, I pray for this time we've gathered, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us as a church, whether we're gathered or whether we're scattered guide what is said, the tone with which it is presented, and the hearts that would receive it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a fun year, has not it? And um, we've reached a certain point in time here. This conversation today was prepared ahead of time. Don't read into anything as supporting one candidate another, or one outcome or another. I want to talk to you today about a minority report. Before we get into that, let me start with a recognition of the situation we're in. Ethicist Russell Moore, a Christian, wrote this, Politics is rarely about how we cooperate to solve civic problems. It's more about the expression of one's entire identity today. Politics now is about whether you prefer Walmart superstores or Whole, whole Food uh, markets, whether you prefer NASCAR or soccer, whether you drive a Prius or a pickup. I drive a G8. Burns a lot of gas. And goes really fast. And I'm okay with that. Sorry about that. Anyways, on and on. He said, sadly, it also tends to track whether you will wear a mask to your Walmart or Whole Foods or whether you think the whole thing is a hoax. There are all sorts of problems with this kind of totalizing political identity, and only one of them is that it's exhausting. Winston Churchill made the statement back in 47. He said, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe, No one pretends that democracy is perfect and all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government. Now, that's almost frankly this past year worth an amen, but except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. It's messy, but there are messier elements out there. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was the chief rabbi for... um, all the Jewish people in the commonwealth, British commonwealth, uh, literally just died, I think, uh, today or yesterday, uh, just recently here. What is known for his wisdom and insight, reaching across different guidelines. He said, to be sure, many elections in the past, speaking about the current situation, have been raw, rude, and raucous in their rhetoric. That is part of the competitive nature of electoral politics. But something new is happening. The sense that the other side is less than fully human. That its supporters are not part of the same moral community as us. That somehow their sensibilities, even, are alien and threatening. As if they were not the opposition within a political arena, but the enemy. Full stop. Period. If we go to Scripture in First Peter chapter 3.15, we read, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone about how you voted, who you support, and why. Do it in the most strenuous, outrageous, obnoxious ways. That's the new international version. <laughs> and it shows our biblical illiteracy if we believe that to be true. First Peter three fifteen says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. There was one very quiet amen on that, and that annoys me. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. The hope that you have. But do this with gentleness, even this with gentleness and respect the hope that we have in Christ, not in a political candidate. There were a number of people that offered prophecies in this last season of time, most of which did not come to pass. In the old days, they would have been stoned. I'm not suggesting that, but not particularly opposed. I would say, look to those who made those prophecies and realize they were false. And if your hope was pinned upon President-elect Biden and not on Christ, you have a problem. If your hope was bent upon President Trump, you have a problem. Our hope as the church is based on Jesus Christ. Now that's an amen. And even this, we're to engage people with gentleness and respect. That's what the Bible says. Romans 15, 7 says, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ accepted us to the glory of God. In this church, whether you're a Republican or Democrat or Tea Party or Tax Party or Communist Party, whatever, we are one people under Christ, and that is our allegiance. I think this, the church in a large way in this time has lost its soul in recent times. And my hope is that in this next season we reclaim that. Graham Kendrick wrote a song years ago that we used to sing in this church that still moves me deeply. And I think for, as we close out this and move into the actual message today, of which this is part of, but only a part of, that I would raise up to you as a statement today. For those of you who've been wrapped up too much with all the donkeys and elephants and have forgotten the lamb, that you'd come back to that and hear this. All I once held dear, I built my life upon. All this world reveres and wars, fights to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss. Spent and worthless now compared to this. Compared to this, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. There is no greater thing. That was weak. That was really weak there is no greater thing. Glad to know you're here. So, we've been following the children of Israel all around the desert for about two years now. uh, They've been wandering around now. Finally, they get into uh, the edge of the land of Canaan. And they're prepared to go in. And so, God's plan was that they would bypass early conflicts, be shaped, and then for two years, and now with his empowering, they're going to go in and take the land. We find them in um, Numbers chapter 13. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. We'll find out later that he did this actually in response to people. In Deuteronomy, it's clear that the people said, Hey, why don't we send some spies out? And Moses was kind of like, Okay, sounds good to me, sort of. And then when he inquires of God, then God says, okay, in this passage here, says, okay, send some guys, take one from each tribe if you're going to do this. But the original idea was not God's, and it wasn't Moses, it was the people's. Why did um, Moses allow for this in his time? There's a little bit of a weakness of leadership in here. And we may find that in chapter 12, because in chapter 12, we find that Jesus, or rather Moses, came under attack over his marriage. And so his own family, Miriam and and others, attacked him over it, and they began to challenge him on uh, the degree of his humility, that he was more arrogant like God spoke only to him. Now, God vindicates him in that chapter, but it may have left some residual inside his heart and spirit that he was a little more insecure in his leadership going into this 13th chapter, and in this moment of time, that when the people raised up and said, hey, why don't, why don't we send some people to spy out this land? And he's like, yeah, it seems okay to me. And God says, okay, well, if you're going to do it, send one of each tribe. One quick side note. There's a statement in that 12th chapter where um, Moses is stated to be the humblest person that ever lived. Now, that always cracked me up because Moses is writing it. Okay? So, you know, Randy is the humblest person that's in this room right now. And we'd all laugh at that. I don't understand that. But if we understand the term here used, the term humble doesn't mean it in the way that we're taking it. A better translation would be um, low or miserable. And it describes a low point in his life. In fact, we translate that word more as meek, to act upon, to humble, depress, afflict. In other words, you could read it this way. Now this man Moses was depressed or afflicted more than anybody else in the land. The point of it being is that Mo had been beat up pretty good. And then we go into the 13th chapter. People say, we want to do this. He's like, okay, we want to just check things out. Fair enough. God says, well, send one from each tribe. Now they go in, and for 40 days, they explore the land, and they scout it. Now they didn't need a military report, because God was saying he was going to be with them. So they're just checking everything out, but they go to all the degree of military, etc. So in Numbers chapter 13, 23 we find that they had found such bounty in the land, such richness. God had said earlier it was a land flowing with milk and honey. They had found such richness that at one point in time they cut out a branch bearing just a single cluster of grapes. And they carry a pole between the two of them, so there's this big cluster of grapes that's hanging down. I mean, these suckers were big along with pomegranates and figs and all sorts of other things that were part of it. So they're bringing back a richness. They have realized that God was true in saying, this is a land that is rich that I'm giving you. The gift I'm giving you is great. And they validate that. And then they go on in the 27th through 28th verses of Numbers, and this is their report, the report of the majority. We enter the land as you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. God is true. His word is real. It's genuine. It's authentic. My gosh, here's the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. They were referred to these descendants of Anak as the Anakim. Not the Anakin. Get Star Wars out of your head. It's the Anakin. But they were giants. They were descended from giants. See, there was even some spiritual implications of who these people were from way back. And so, there's a spiritual giant that's there. So, yes, it's rich. Yes, God is true. His word is faithful. But it's going to be tough. In fact, uh, I don't think we can work this out, really. And so they're beginning to have concerns and questions. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 30, Caleb, one of two of the 12 that are in the minority on this, Joshua being the other, tries to quiet the people so as they're all kind of muttering, it's great food, but we'll let the rest, and we're all fearful. Then he says, wait a minute, quiet down. Let me talk to you guys a minute. He says, let's go at once to take the land. We can certainly conquer it. We can do this. Yeah, there's stuff here, but there's a richness. We can do this going on in verse 31 and 33 but the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed we can't go up against them they are stronger than we are and so they spread this bad report among the land about the land among the Israelites they began to post they began to forward things they began to retweet and tweet we can't do this. And it passed all around the stuff. And so everyone's on the social media and fasting through the camp and they're all caught up with it. And before long, it begins to reach this fevered pitch where everyone says, like, we can't do this. They pass it around everyone. The land we travel through uh, uh, and, and explored will, will devour us. It's literally like a, some giant creature. Anyone who goes to live there and all the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak, Anakim, not Anakin. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And here's an interesting line. And that's what they thought too. Next to them, we look like grasshoppers, really small. And you know what? The people in that land, they thought that about us. Who do we care about what the people in that land think about us? Why are we taking their input of how they view us? Why do you take the input of, of, of the enemy of your soul as to how you are and who you are supposed to be? God determines who you are. But in this statement here, they're saying that's what they thought too. They bring the enemy's counsel into their moment of how they're being viewed. So basically, God is true. He's faithful. He's brought him to the land exactly as he thought he would. And they're saying it's all there. But they go and say, despite all of that, We're fearful. We're caught up. And so in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 14, the whole community began weeping aloud. They cried all night. And their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we died in Egypt or here in the wilderness, they complained. So they begin weeping and and crying. We're so fearful. We can't do this. We've come for two years now struggling, and now we get to the line. And yes, God's true. What he said is actually true, but there's there's a problem. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. God tells us he's got some plans for us, and he's made them available to us, and we see that his word is true and everything else, but we look here and say, but it's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be painful. It's scary, this thing you're calling me to do. Well, I don't want to do that. Where's the easy stuff, God? Where's the really great jobs and the wonderful marriages and the, and the easiest churches to live in and circumstances? Where are those at? So they're crying and they're weeping. And then they do like they've done over and over again. They want to go back to the past. No people, whether it's a church, whether it's a nation, can live in the past. You cannot keep going back to what was once. You don't live, you don't move forward. You not only lose the present, you forfeit the future. You cannot live in the past. These people are constantly obsessed with that. And oftentimes we in the church are as well. So they complain about this. And then there's an interesting line here I want to draw your attention to. In verse three, our, lo- our wives and our little ones, our children, our children. We're really concerned about our children because they're going to be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Then they plot amongst themselves. Let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. We're going to choose. We're going to make a, a democratic call. We're going to make our decisions of who leads and decides us and not what God would say on the deal. So in verse 14, 5 through 9, Moses and Aaron, they fall face down on the ground before the whole community of Israel. Another word for community here and elsewhere is congregation for the whole church. Two of the men who had explored the land, Joshua and Caleb, they're so intense about their their report, they tear their clothing. They say to all the people, look at the land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he'll bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It is rich and flowing with milk and honey, just like God said. Do not rebel against the Lord. Don't be afraid of the people of the land. They're only helpless Pray to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. Don't let fear overcome you. Now here's two guys, Joshua and Caleb. Moses and Aaron are a separate entity, but they're part of it too. Two out of the 12 are rising up against the majority of not just the 10, but everyone they've retreated and posted to. Everyone that's wrapped up with fear and it's great crying out and screaming and yelling and everything else and they're standing up in the midst and saying, look at, we can do this. This is the minority report. If God is with us, we can achieve this. God's word is proven true. The stuff is there. We can achieve this. That took tremendous courage to stand up in that setting and do that. To be in the minority, to stand against the majority for a righteous purpose, not just stubbornness, but for a righteous cause, is a dangerous thing to do and takes great courage. But the alternative is much worse. Look at what happens in this situation. And they're saying, don't be afraid because fear is what's overcoming and fear is not of God and fear has driven many of you in these last number of years and in this last couple of days and weeks. And that's a mistake. God's grace is with you if you follow him and if he is in fact your Lord don't let the circumstances throw you off as to what's surrounding you and what's in place these guys had gone in as spies all 12 of them and 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 significantly two people can see the exact same sights the same grapes the same men the same land the same cities Two people can see the exact same thing, but one can come away singing in faith, and the other is filled with a sense of certain doom over what they're seeing. Ultimately, faith or unbelief does not spring from our circumstances or environment, but from our hearts. And it's there that God wants to engage us. It's there that He wants to draw us to Himself. So they say this. They offer their minority view with great courage. And then in 14, chapter 14, 10 through 12, but the whole community began to talk about stoning them. Doesn't that encourage you to take that stance now? They stood up for what was right, and now they're going to get stoned. For those of you who are caught in the 60s still, these were real stones, okay? Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared. So two things happen. One is the people say, we don't like your physician." It threatens, it feels wrong, maybe it, means, it makes us feel bad, we don't know what, we're going to kill you, is the first response. The second response, though, is God shows up. Now today, God doesn't show up as profoundly in these ways as he does here, but he still shows up. And sometimes it does profound. When you stand in the minority, but it's a righteous minority, and it's got nothing to do with what's happened this last couple of weeks. I'm not making a judgment on that or making a stance on that. But when you do in the cause of Christ, others may stone you. This is what it means to pick up your cross and follow Christ. This is what it means to sacrifice. This is what it means to have faith. But God's presence is with you. The Lord says to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? Will they never believe me, even after all the miraculous signs I've done for, you, for them? I'm going to disown them and destroy them with a the plague. Quick, interesting line. Then I'll make you into a nation greater and mightier than they are. Real quick side note. This is the second time that Moses has offered his own um, people. Prior to the same way, he'd been offered that opportunity to become a patriarch, like Abraham, I- Isaac, and Jacob. We'll get rid of all these people. We'll start fresh with you and your seed, and we'll make a great nation out of you. You're going to be like Abraham, Isaac. You're going to be one of the great ones. And twice Moses says, I don't want that if it means losing all the people. He's a faithful shepherd to his flock. He turns down the superstardom and celebrityism that could come with things. Historically, our cultural institutions, from government and military to media, education, business, religion, civic group, they've served to mold the character of their members in line with their mission and values, and the leaders of these different sectors, including the church, sought to serve the institution and its members, and thus the greater good. In recent years, however, leaders have come to see the institutions that they are supposed to serve as platforms for personal advancement and status. It's bad enough when it's in the government, but it's worse when it's in the church. Russell Moore, in the same ethicist, made this statement. Government leaders have fallen victim to the cult of celebrity, Many in the media have sought to serve their personal brands through their reporting and visibility. Universities have become platforms for faculty and students to demand social changes aligned with their activistic agendas. Business leaders have sought personal wealth and advancement to the detriment of their employees and society as a whole. Religious leaders, their authority undermined by clergy abuse scandals and personal ambition have become celebrities rather than shepherds social media is exacerbating the problem rather than molding us through engagement with contrary positions and experiences it exposes us only to news and opinions with which we agree it then serves as a platform for trumpeting our personal opinions and seeking as many followers and likes as possible even the family, he concludes, saying once the foundational institution for molding character has been redefined as anything we wish it to be, we have become consumers who then use our choices with regard to gender and sexuality as platforms for personal expression. Moses is faced with the opportunity to embrace everything I just read, and he turns it down. And it would have even been a godly way of doing it. And he says, I'm more committed to the people and to your vision for them. So, Numbers chapter 14, verses 29 through 31. God says, you're all gonna drop dead in the wilderness because you complained against me. Every one of you who's 20 years old or older, I'm not going to ask how many of you are under 20 in here, but the rest of you are all dead. It was included, okay? You're not going to enter and occupy the land. Only exceptions are going to be Caleb and Joshua. Only the minority is going to make it. Everyone 20 and under, remember earlier, their biggest concern was, we're concerned for our children. God says, yeah, you shouldn't worry about that. They're going to be fine. The kids, you're just fine. You, on the other hand, you're not going to make it. Your children... You said we carried off his plunder? Well, I'll bring them safely in the land and you'll enjoy what you have despised. So they finally get it. And in this next to the last scripture or so, um, Moses reports the words to Lord's words to all the Israelites, the people are filled with grief, verses thirty nine through forty two. When they got up early the next morning, went to the top of the range of hills. Let's go. We realize we've sinned, but now we're ready to enter the land that Lord has promised for us. You know, before, we're a little worried, we're upset, but but now we're we're all ready and set to go. Um, Dumb move. When God was with them, they didn't think it was enough. Now that God was not with them, they thought they could do it. In both cases, they were caught up with their own agendas and their own desires more than following God in both situations. And so they decide they're going to rise up and and Moses says, why are you now disobeying the Lord's orders now? You didn't want to do it before, now you're disobeying these to return the will. So it won't work. Don't go up into the land now. You'll only be crushed by your enemies because the Lord's not with you. You didn't want it when it was offered to you. So now you're never going to have it. When God was with them, they didn't think it was enough. Now that God was not with them, they thought they could do it. Both were violations. And so instead they're turned back into the desert. I only want to draw your attention to two more things here, and then I, I want to engage you on two different things as we close this gathering. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is a passage that is not going to show up on the screen. It's Numbers chapter 14, verses 21 through 24. In the midst of all this conversation where God's telling them things and judging them, it says, Nevertheless, as sure as I live and as sure as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times. Understand the patience of God before you sit here and say, Wow, we just tick off God and he blows us away. Tested 10 times. He was patient. Not one of them is going to see the land I promised. No one who is treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb, catch this, has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. So everybody over 20 is going to die, but Joshua and Caleb are going to walk with these people. They're going to be the, the graybeards, the, the mature ones that walk with these kids into the land at a later time. But the reason why is it says he had a different spirit. I think in this season of time, which has lasted for a lengthy period of time months, years, whatever you want to call it I think the church, in many ways, has been too aligned to the spirit of this world. It's time for the church to wake up and realize it's supposed to have a different spirit. We are the church. We're not a social club. We are not a political entity. We are the church. We've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. By his grace, we stand, and we're to have a different spirit. And how we engage those around us, whether they oppose us or whether they are for us. Whether we are in the majority or whether we are in the oppressed minority. We are to have a different spirit. Psalm 20, 95 says, Today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of the trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and I said it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. And so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. An entire generation was lost just because the majority thought they were doing the right thing. But there was a minority that had a different spirit There was a minority that held to the things of God, that trusted him, that did not get caught up with fear. And they walked the next generation into the promised land. Now this morning I have two things I want to share with you before we conclude today. The one I want you to observe, the second I want you to participate eventually in. This first one is the collage that we put together ways back, but now it's been significantly expanded as we have everyone except five or six pagans that will still be sought out, (laughs) that have not gotten their pictures in, and some for legitimate reasons that I accept. Those that haven't, whatever. And as this is being presented to you today, and it's fairly lengthy, as you're seeing the church that you're part of, or at least a significant portion of it, I want you to understand that it's a group made up of Republicans and Democrats. Well-educated, poorly educated. High social status, low social status. But every one of them are followers of Christ and this is the church. And as you look at these faces and as you experience this moment of time, I want you to test your own spirit and say, who are you in this picture? In what way... Do you contribute? Do you bring a worldly spirit and the perspective of of the enemy into how we are viewed? Or do you believe in the promises of God? Will you stand against the majority? Even the majority appears to be righteous at times. What cup of spirit do you have? All that once I saw his gain, everything I fought and warred to own, all the things that seem so important, all the politics, all the jobs, all the relationships, none of it, none of it compares to knowing Christ. We are to have a different spirit. We are the church, saved by grace, despite ourselves. We're to be gentle and respectful. And we're to have a different spirit. And if that means we're in the minority or the majority, does not change. this week examine your priorities and your loyalties examine your fears and what drives and motivates you in the opinion of others don't lose what God has for you take the timing that he has for you now Father I pray for this nation I pray for our president elect Lord that you would guide and shape him in the leader that you want him to be I pray for our current president. I pray for our governors, our own specific one, the mayors in our towns, the leaders of our industry. But regardless of whatever happens in this nation, I pray that the church remember first and foremost that it's the church. And that we're not bound by ethnicity, that we're not bound by national identity, that we're not bound by status. Education and wealth, or the lack thereof. But we are your people called by your name, and we're to have a different spirit. Let us embrace this as we go forward.